As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We're taking great pride with the titanic effort of our booking team, to bring you experts on Ukraine. I speak of the generals of the American military, General Hodges, General Kimmett, thank you so much for uh, joining us, people in diplomacy such as Ambassador Haas. And we move that forward today with Yuri Sack. He is advisor to Ukraine's defense minister, but far more is steeped in the diplomacy linkage to military effort, if you will, from diplomacy to attack and defense. Mr. Sack, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It will be a spring war. It will be on the ground in mud. How do you foresee that tanks will be utilized? Good morning, Tom, and thank you for inviting me. Now, we have said a long time ago that with the courage and determination of the Ukrainian armed forces, we were able to, uh, and of course with the help of the military assistance that we received from our allies, we were able to stabilize the front and we are now getting ready for our counteroffensive, which we hope will begin soon. Now, because our military objective remains the complete deoccupation of Ukrainian territories and restoring peace in Ukraine as well as in Europe. Mm-hmm. So the tanks, the tanks uh, which will be provided to Ukraine uh, by the tank coalition, international tank coalition, will be instrumental in helping Ukrainian army break through the defense lines of the enemy on the <coughs> temporary occupied territories. And uh, we are seeing that, you know, the tanks, uh, the first tanks uh, are already on their way. And we right. hope that the tank coalition will continue stepping up their efforts and sending us more. To move out another year in this terrible war, can those tanks drive to Crimea? Do you perceive a uh, a linkage of what Kyiv wants on Crimea with what the allies want on Crimea. I think the Kyiv and allies are aligned when it comes to the situation with Crimea because everybody recognizes that Crimea is an internationally recognized territory of Ukraine which has been illegally annexed in 2014. But when it comes to the actual format in which Crimea will be returned to Ukraine, uh, our military will take that decision when it comes uh, and most probably it will be a mixture of diplomatic efforts as well as military. Yuri, I'd appreciate your insights, sir, on how close we are to the West providing jets to Ukraine. Do you think we're approaching that moment? 
We are pushing for the fighter jets on a daily basis. Our Minister of Defense, our President, uh, everyone from the political and military leadership. And we understand that these are sophisticated platforms that require the training of pilots, the training of engineer crews, they require logistics. Um, so uh, it's not going to happen overnight, but we're doing everything we can on our side to facilitate this process because fighter jets are the last remaining hurdle and they will be instrumental in helping Ukraine achieve victory, which we hope will be this year. Yuri, how long do you think that would take to train pilots and make that kind of thing operational? Well, you know, we are in a different situation. Ordinarily, training pilots takes uh, about a year, uh, if not more. But we are in a situation where, first, we already have pilots who have combat battlefield experience, and our pilots are ready to be trained in three to six months. They will be ready to fly these platforms. Mr. Sack, it's, it's simple. You need material as well. As I asked our Maria Tadeo in Kiev an hour ago, tell me about the manpower of your defense ministry. Do you have enough soldiers? It always comes down to infantry, doesn't it? The state of the Ukrainian infantry. Indeed, we, our armed forces are, uh, you know, we have sufficient reserves. And, the, and, and of course, the reason why we are in a better position than our enemy, whose uh, military capability has been degraded by the Ukrainian armed forces during the last 12 months significantly, is because we are not using our soldiers as cannon fodder. We are not using them in the mid-grinder <clears throat> tactics. We are fighting a smart war, and we have a high mm -hmm. regard for our personnel. So we take smart decisions, and this allows us to right. maintain the sufficient number of troops. And, of course, where necessary... If we need, we uh, mobilize more people. Uh, but for now, we are ready for any development and we are ready to uh, continue the deoccupation of Ukrainian territories. Give us an update on the Black Sea. Mariupol was just horrific eight, nine months ago as well. Discuss the state of the Black Sea as you enter year two of this war. Well, as you know, the Black Sea now, uh, there is uh, the Russian Black Sea fleet uh, in the Crimea and Sevastopol. So Russia and, and Russia continues to control uh, what happens in the Black Sea. But of course, we will continue building up our military capability. And this is why we are asking for longer range missiles, because they will be helpful in terms of helping us achieve our objectives deeper into the enemy's territory and making sure that Black Sea is safe as well as for like, things like grain deal, the supply of agricultural products from uh, the Ukrainian territory, which was of concern to the international community for a long time. Yuri, the United States has committed tens of billions of dollars to support Ukraine and the war effort in your country. There are some concerns where you are in Washington about the misappropriation of some of those funds. How are you allaying some of those concerns? We are implementing, when it comes to the Ministry of Defense, uh, since almost day one of this war, we were implementing, for example, the procurement systems, which are of NATO standard, so for example, LOGFAST system. So these are the same systems as are used by all NATO member countries. And of course, we are improving them on a daily basis. Uh, everything, and of course, the Ministry of Defense uh, is open and welcomes always uh, our counterparties from different ally countries uh, to come and visit and see it for themselves. Everything Everything we receive goes straight to the battlefield and is used efficiently there by our army. So, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, transparency, we are open. Uh, we are introducing new standards. We are new introducing new NATO standard uh, procurement mechanisms. And uh, we can assure and guarantee our allies that uh, nothing is misappropriated. Everything is going to be used on the battlefield. Yuri, it's an incredibly difficult time for your country and on a one-year milestone that we all hoped we wouldn't approach We've landed on. We appreciate your time to join us today. Thank you, sir. Yuri Sack, the advisor to Ukraine's defence minister.
On Ukraine, and this is a really important conversation, in my youth, there was a gentleman from Arkansas named Senator Fulbright. And Senator Fulbright had a real understanding of the continent of Europe, having lived World War II, like many. And, and within that, he and Oxford did all sorts of things in uh, academics, including the Fulbright Foundation. Alina Polyakova survived the Fulbright Foundation, is now with the Center for European Policy Analysis and professor at Johns Hopkins. Alina, I want to go to William Fulbright here and really fold it into your wonderful note, which is we're not doing a Fulbright war. Fulbright said, if you're going to do it, do it. And if you're not, don't do it. You say this is the forever war. Are the allies migrating towards Kiev or are we still at a distance? Well, thanks, Tom, and you're absolutely right. I was just at the Munich Security Conference, which, of course, is the largest gathering on defense and security for the Transatlantic Alliance. And I took away a couple of things on your point. One, uh, I heard incredible bipartisan support from the U.S. Congress. We had the largest U.S. congressional delegation to Munich ever, which is significant. Uh, and with one voice, you know, you don't hear Republicans and Democrats speaking in one voice and too many things, but on this, they were clear, we need a win. We want Ukraine to win. Unfortunately, that's not what we hear with one voice from all of our European allies. And I think that's the real problem here. So we're in this situation where we've given Ukraine a drip, 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 drip of weapons and financial assistance, but it's not enough for them to truly win and take back their sovereign territory. Well, Alina, this is really important. I mean, I'm not going to go back to Vietnam and Fulbright is an early critic of our Vietnam War experience. But in the more recent age, we have the forever wars of Iraq and certainly the forever war for Russia and the U.S. of Afghanistan. Are we not used to anymore actually fighting and doing war? Well, the truth is this doesn't have to be another one of those so-called forever wars. It shouldn't be. Uh, the Ukrainians have been fighting incredibly courageously. They have, you know, really gone far and beyond anyone's expectations. You know, we used to think a year ago that this was going to be a three-day war and Kiev was going to fall. But Kiev stands, as President Biden recently said. So there's no reason for this to be another embroiled, you know, multi-year war. The war can end this year. It's really just about whether we want to help Ukrainians enough to get it done. They can get it done. Are we going to be there to help them? Alina Polyakova there of the Center yeah, for European Policy Analysis. It. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Here's why you should lean forward, folks. Sobrato Joppa with us now. Yeah, ahead of U.S. rates, strategy at SockGen. But what you need to know is the derivative mathematics of society general was invented and invented quantitative finance with a nod to Imperial College in London. Sobrato was steeped in this at New York University with a late Peter Carr with a major hat tip to a guy named Merton from MIT. Sobrato, I want to go to Merton right now, who won his Nobel Prize for continuous functions. We are as disjoint right now is I think I've ever seen a pandemic, blah, blah, blah. How disjoint are we? How can SockGen do mathematics now, given the stew that we're in? I think ultimately in an environment like this, you have to look at the long term. I think looking at market moves day to day, week to week, is going to be very, very difficult to predict directionality (laughs) because there's just a lot of uh, a confluence of, of so many different factors to take into account. Uh, even if you look at our own forecast for, for last year, you know, we kind of uh, moved 10 yields, uh, you know, the goalpost for 4%, and we kind of stayed there. We ultimately got there. So you, you kind of have to look at the longer run. I think intra-week, <clears throat> intra-month moves are going to be very, right. very hard to predict in an environment like this. Okay, I'm going to go on a Friday. It's, it's Global Wall Street Friday, folks. Keep up here if you're taking uh, notes. There'll be a quiz later. So, Brada, Roman Fridman at New, your New York University invented the measurement of hedging. If we're going nowhere and there's a cost to hedging, how long can we keep this going nowhere shell game up before we get a vector that shows actual movement? So, I mean, it's not like we're not going anywhere. I think every time we get more more data, more information, we're kind of adding to what we know and, and informing our decisions based on that. Um, over, uh, you know, the Fed, for instance, is almost at the end of its rate hike cycle. Uh, so really what we're looking at is to see when that pivot will be. Calling the timing of the pivot is going to be very, very difficult. But I think the destination is clear. Ultimately, the, the Fed wants to orchestrate demand destruction. Under those circumstances, what you're going to see is a slowdown in the economy eventually and a and, and recession. And that to us would mean that yields would have to go eventually lower. Timing when that's going to happen, exactly when that pivot's going to happen, is extraordinarily difficult. But I think... Uh, you know, for the most part, we know what the destination is. We just don't know what the journey is. Well, we've got to manage a balance of risks around every view. Reading your research, Abadra, given what you've just said, do you think the risks are asymmetric and not that balanced? Yeah, I think so. For the for the bond market, it feels like the risks are a little bit more asymmetric. We're not at the beginning of the cycle. We're close to the end of the cycle uh, for the Fed. Uh, yes, the Fed might maybe deliver, uh, you know, maybe two or three more 25 basis point rate hikes. But after that, I think that broadly speaking, uh, the, the risks are that yields will go lower from there on. So we feel like the risks to these treasury yields are asymmetrically skewed towards, uh, towards uh, the downside as opposed to uh, the upside. And, you know, this is, of course, is a very asynchronous environment. You look at the ECB, they're still very much earlier on in their, in their rate hike uh, cycle. They have a lot more to deliver. But broadly for the, for the U.S., I feel like there's just, 
going to be a, a wall of cash that starts entering the bond market again when 10 yields start getting above 4%. Uh, you know, fixed income assets in general, you look at corporate bonds, uh, even ETFs, you're seeing a tremendous amount of inflows into, into the bond market. So I think that that sort of, uh, you know, wall of cash is going to cap the rise in yields over the near term. The title of your note yesterday evening, and I was sitting in bed because I go to bed at 7 p.m. because we're really sad here at Bloomberg Surveillance. So I was sitting there reading Sock Gen's latest note, Tom. I beat you by two hours. Thank you. <laughs> titled Tricky. It's titled Tricky, Sabedra, and I think everything about this is tricky at the moment. I was thinking about where we were 12 months ago. Tom and I, Lisa too, we're all having this conversation. If you'd said 5% Fed funds pushing six and then said 3.4% unemployment and retail sales where that is, jobless claims where they are, I just wouldn't have believed it. And so, Badger, the same thing with the ECB. This idea we're now going to push 4% from negative 50 to go out to 4%, just like that. Only 12 months ago, we were still doing QE in the United States. So, Badger, have you been surprised? What's your experience been, your takeaway from how this cycle <clears throat> has gone and, and what we haven't seen, which is just monster fallout so far? Yeah, no, this cycle has definitely surprised everyone in, in every country, if you will. In the U.S., we were not expecting, you know, the Fed funds rate to get to five and a quarter or five and a half percent. And I think it's definitely more shocking for the ECB. You're looking at, uh, you know, close yeah. to four percent, uh, you know, when, <clears throat> when it's all said and done. Um, so definitely this this whole, uh, you know, inflationary environment has been very, very hard to gauge. And, you know, monetary policy for the for the for the most part is a very blunt tool. So the only thing that central banks have in their tool chest is to be able to, to to raise rates. And as they raise rates, I think ultimately they're uh, going to lead to, to, to demand destruction. Sabrina, we've heard, I think, twice this week, the rationalization that's okay if fixed income prices go lower because now I'm earning a coupon, which makes the capital loss less painful. All my radar is up on that analysis. Does the coupon save me if we get higher yields? Absolutely. That's the reason oh, why you want to be involved. See that joy? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that sell side joy for keep it going, Sobrata. <laughs> no, I mean I mean it's it's the coupon that really matters, right? I mean in, in some respects, you know, you're some sort of a you know win win situation, if you will, in, in, in the in the bond market. Either you lock in go. a five percent, you know, coupon and you're happy with that. Um, or, you know, you, you could see an environment where you see a flight to quality or the Fed has to pivot and you see this rally back in, and, and flows into bonds. It's going to bring bond yields lower. So if you, in, the, in the broad spectrum of options you have to invest in, in, in the investment world, you probably don't want to put your money into <clears> risky <throat> assets or equities. Uh, bonds are your safe haven bet. You're getting very uh, high coupons, high yields. Uh, and you have the upside from a potential rally in right. bonds if there is a policy pivot. If we near a 6% terminal rate, where does a 10-year yield go? I think the yield curve is going to remain uh, you know, relatively inverted. You're looking at, see, negative 80 basis points in, in two tens. Um, I don't see why the long end will, uh, will sell off a lot and the yield curve will steepen unless the Fed is uh, thinking about pivoting on policy. So this is very much going to be a front-end-led uh, sell-off in, in bonds. The yield curve is going to remain inverted uh, for a good portion of this year. 
we'll be looking to see when that yield curve starts to steepen, i.e. bull steepen, uh, and, and as a sign, if you will, of when the Fed might potentially pivot. Our view is that the U.S. economy is going to go into recession in, in early 2024. So in the latter half of, of, of this year is when we really think the yield curve will start to, to steepen out. So that's the signal that, we, <clears throat> that we'll be looking to see to see if there's going to be a policy pivot. So, Sabatra, I asked this understanding that it's different for different people with different risk tolerance and different situations and circumstances. I get that. But are you advocating for people to buy the 10-year at four instead of the six-month at five, given the investment risk? the reinvestment risk that you think might be down the road as yields drop? I think you should you should do both, right? I mean, if you're looking at you, you're getting very, very high yields in the very front end of the yield curve. Um, I would say that a lot of, uh, you know, investors, even in their, in their uh, you know, personal accounts, you start looking at five, five and a half percent returns in, in the very short end. It's very, very attractive. You, you, if you have cash to put to work, you'd probably want to put it in the, in the bill market or the front end of the bond market because your returns are going to be very, very high and safe. You have a lot of volatility if you put that market into money into risky assets. Uh, on the long end, I mean, if you're looking at, uh, say, an asset liability manager, or a pension fund, or an insurance company, you start getting 10 yields close to 4%. It starts looking very, very attractive for some of these longer-lived asset liability managers. So I think you're going to see different buyers in different segments of the yield curve, if you will. Well said, Sabantra. Just brilliant. That was, folks, Fantastic. for those of you who are not in Global Wall Street, what a window that was. She's awesome. To how adults think in the industry. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to make this clear, folks, if Hilarion hears that or Rogoff hears that, they're listening to her, even though it's away from their economics. I think Mohammed is listening to that. Is he? Going to be in the studio uh, shortly. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I won't see him. Sabatra, Rajapra Sogjen. It's probably Sabatra, on GPT. Thank you. Max Kettner joins us now, Chief Multi Asset Strategist over at HSBC. Max, good morning to you. You've nailed this market year to date. You came in, you dropped your max underweight call on equities, and equities ripped. I just wonder if you're changing your mind now relative to what we've seen in the last couple of days. No, I don't think so. I think um, it is quite remarkable the bearishness and perhaps the intensification of the bearishness that we've seen over the last uh, couple of days. Now, of course, I think U.S. equities stand perhaps in a little bit of a, a tougher spot, right, tactically. They've outperformed a little bit too much if we compare it to long-dated real rates, if we compare it to uh, uh, interest rate volatility, for example. So perhaps there's a bit of, you know, bit of correction potential in, in U.S. equities still. Fine. But we were pretty vocal and we've been pretty vocal over the last couple of weeks uh, as well, that whenever we are going to see such dips, we'd rather be taking these as opportunities to buy rather than really throw in the towel. And if anything, if we look at other markets and markets, we prefer in equities, for example, like the Eurozone equity market. That's just a couple of, you know, a couple of tens of a percent away from the all time high. So, yes, things might not look as good in, in U.S. equities, but in other equities markets, such as the Eurozone, things are pretty good. They're pretty okay. Max is amazing. In about 10 minutes' time, we're going to have this conversation on Ukraine and talk about how dreadful this war is on the Eurozone's doorstep. And at the same time, we're looking at an equity screen. Year to date, in France, up 13%. In Germany, up 11%. In Italy, up 15%. Max, why can that continue? I think it's, it boils down, really, to the, to the overall economics and to the earnings outlook, and especially to expectations. Right? The reality is that we went into the winter of 2022 and 2023 
2023 with extremely bearish expectations, right? Remember that perhaps three, four months ago, consensus was basically positioned for an absolute calamity to happen in the Eurozone, right? A gas crunch, gas prices uh, shooting higher, so real incomes being squeezed even more, and so on and so on. So we had we had very, very pessimistic expectations. That is only just started to uh, really perhaps turn a little bit when we look at consensus GDP expectations, for example, in the Eurozone in particular. They've only started to really to rise ever so slightly at the start right. of this year. Uh, the same thing goes for earnings expectations. Look at earnings expectations. I do agree that for the full year, they still look a little bit too high. But look at the S&P. S&P earnings expectations were above $57 just three months ago. We're now below $51. How on earth can we come up with a really, really bearish near-term picture if we see such bearish expectations already for the near term? Max, I want you to help me with the calculus at the moment. This is a theme I've been talking about all week, boring people to death, in which I have, we're moving so fast, Max, and as John mentioned, you've been great at the moving fast of it, that I'm really leaning on three-month annualized data. Are you doing that at HSBC? Are you having to shorten in and look at 90 days of data and think from there? Um, In some parts, yes. So I was a little bit puzzled to be perfectly honest, at the start of the year, we had quite a bit of pushback from clients who would say, well, you know, when you look at the December activity data out of the US, look at retail sales, industrial production, that is clearly indicative of a recession, right? So clearly, why are you going bullish now? This is the wrong time. And conversely, now, when we had this sort of a bit of a rebound in the January data, now people are saying, oh, this is the big re-acceleration. We're sort of them in the middle. Let's let's be honest, right? You guys will know it better than me. But if we remember in in December, I think the, the US had quite a bit of a tough time when you know you had minus 40 minus 50 degrees celsius and of course some of the activity data was reflecting that and of course then on the month of a month in in january we had a bit of, bit of a rebound i do think we're sort of in the middle growth is definitely not as weak as people expected mm-hmm. three four months ago so we're definitely in global growth terms seeing some acceleration but i don't think that it's going to be this great re-acceleration right that leads to utterly more hawkishness perhaps like a 50 basis point hike in, right. in March by the Fed. I don't think, I think that is a bit overplayed. So what is your equity allocation within multi-asset? Is it an international, US, UK, domestic, maybe continental Europe skew? What is the, the factor that determines the equity allocation? Yeah, we're still really liking, for example, Eurozone equities. We're not overweight in, in the US. We're not overweight in Japan. In fact, we're, we're underweight in Japan because we do see a little bit more up, uh, upside for the Japanese yen and that should go against Japanese earnings. So it's really focused on the Eurozone, a little bit in emerging markets as well. Not so much in the US because the US has outperformed uh, that move in, in rates a little bit too much. But that, having said that, I think once we get those dips in US equities, in the growth market, that I do think with almost 80 basis points of rate hikes cumulatively priced now for the next couple of Fed meetings, I do think that there is actually... At this starting point right now, perhaps a little bit more potential for dovish surprises, so both for long-duration assets uh, in rates but also in equities. And then it will be the time to really use those dips to scale uh, uh, to scale up exposure in, in U.S. equities as well. Hey, Max, thanks for that. As always, Max Kettner there of HSBC. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, a very important conversation. We do this with the yield lifting up, as Karen just mentioned, to four digits. Ten-year yield, 3.9569 and rising. We're going into the 10 a.m. data, housing in Michigan, and I'm really, really watching that statistic, the Dow down 400 points to put things in perspective. This is maybe the conversation of the week for those of concern of inflation who are not quiescent. And this goes back a long way to freshwater economics to the giant of my childhood, Carl Bruner of the University of Rochester, and a guy, a guy named Meltzer out at Carnegie Mellon, and all of their thinking pushing against Fed theory of the Shadow Open Market Committee. Providing leadership for there for years was Mickey Levy, now with Berenberg Capital Markets, and we're thrilled Dr. Levy could join us this morning. Mickey, I'm gonna cut to the chase. M2 is back in vogue again, even among those that have pushed aside monetarist theory. After the Biden stimulus and the M2 crash, what should be the appropriate theory for Chairman Powell? Well, Tom, I think you're, you're right on because the combination of the excessive fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus is what drove excess demand and the higher inflation. So when I think back to uh, 2020, that's when I started signaling, watch out, inflation's gonna come roaring back. And the Fed's model, um, you plug in an extra two trillion in fiscal stimulus in um, Biden's March 2021 package, and it didn't even move the dial on, on their inflation forecast or their economic growth forecast. So we had this huge bulge mm-hmm. in, house, in household uh, d- d- um, disposable income, uh, a large portion of which was spent, some was saved, and now it's still uh, trickling out. And meanwhile, so you had a six and a half right. trillion dollar bulge in, in, in M2, and now people are spending right. it. 
And so, and now, now you have this situation where inflation's high, and, and I know we're going to get to this, but let me just emphasize one critical point here. Everybody's focusing on the funds rate. Guess what? It's still below the rate of inflation. So, Tom, if, if the funds rate is negative in real terms, is monetary policy really really restrictive now? There we go. Yeah. That's a Paul. No. That's yep. a Mickey Levy I used. <laughs> Jump in here, Paul. That's a Dr. Levy I used to know. So, Mickey, I mean, given the, the, the inflation data we saw today, hot pretty much across the board, I guess you could characterize it, that gives plenty of leeway for this Federal Reserve to go higher for longer. What's your call on what our Federal Reserve is going to do over the next several meetings? Paul, here I have to distinguish between what they ought to do and what they're likely to do. Okay. They ought to move 50 basis points. That's what I wrote in a, in a report last week. Um, and, and once again, they should be focusing on the real funds rate, not the nominal funds rate. And so they really should move 50 to reinforce their, their inflation-fighting credibility and to slow aggregate demand in the economy. Once again, note with today's yeah. number, you know, you, you've got, you've got uh, nominal GDP is, is growing way too rapidly, even through Q1. What's your nominal GDP wait, wait, statistic wait, right wait, now? This what, is important. What's your yeah. nominal GDP number right now, Dr. Levy? Okay. Um, in the fourth quarter, it was six and a half. This yeah. quarter, it's going to be a, another over six. With Feels the great. Consumption number. It's too rapid. That what that means is you've got too much aggregate demand, which is providing businesses the pricing flexibility to right. raise prices. You have to slow demand. Now, what the Fed's likely to do? I think they're likely to move. 25 rather than 50. Although there's a very interesting tug and pull, you know, between the hawks and the doves on on the well, on the I don't. And I should point out, Dr. Levy's not on the short list to be vice chairman, to say uh, the least. <laughs> Mickey Levy, what's important to me, and I've switched to a three-month annualized study here. Things are moving so rapidly. Do you ascribe to a rapid descent in disinflation once we get there? Or do you look a la Wayne Angel at battling a more pernicious inflation from another time? Tom, I do expect inflation to come down. I do not expect it to come down as rapidly as the Fed is predicting or as rapidly as the market hopes. So, yes, we're going to see like the biggest component, um, the shelter costs, OER and rental costs. That's going to peak, you know, Oh, late spring, and then it's going to start to roll over, and that'll bring inflation down. But keep in mind, um, nominal spending growth is still too rapid. And then once that comes down, it takes a while for prices to adjust. So I think if you look at the three-month annualized, yeah, it's going to come down yep. from where we are. But but the, 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 big, the big question is, is the Fed, when the Fed talks about the need to get inflation back to two, are we? Are they believable? Do you think they really want to raise rates, keep raising rates until they get inflation right. down to two? So, Mickey, I, I mean, I, so I guess, I guess that raises another question: is is the recession is that off the table? No, it's not. Now, keep in mind, we had a decline in, consum in consumption in November, December. And now we get this big bulge. We got the big bulge. Look, look at all the data we've had so far for January. Um, 
employment, retail sales, the ISMs were all up strongly. Now consumption, uh, February, you know, we sh- we should see some some retrenchment. So this piece of data today gets consumption and GDP, you know, off to the racetrack in Q1. But I think things are going to simmer right. down, and so. Between now and the next yeah. uh, FOMC meeting, you know, we get another round okay. of retail sales employment. Yeah. Mickey, I got one question left, and it's all the time we got for him. I'm so sorry. The raging debate, and folks, my book of the summer is Olivier Blanchard really looking at the fiscal ramifications of the spirit of our economy. It's a mathy book. It's it's a it's a, like an adult economic book, and and I'll have much more on that as we get closer to the summer. But Mickey, the heart of the matter off Lobach and Williams of 2001 is where do we settle out? I would suggest Mr. McCollum and Meltzer at Carnegie Mellon and the great Carl Bruner of the Swiss at at, at, at Rochester would have said years ago, we're going to settle out at an unanchored, hired inflation rate. Is that baked in now? The 2% done and we got to get used to some structural 2.x percent number? Not necessarily. It depends on what the Fed wants and what it's willing to pursue. Okay, so once again, John Williams, president of the New York Fed, has, has kind of backed off a, a, a reliable yes. estimate of, of our star. Um, once again, the real funds rate is negative. How, how much more is the Fed willing to hike even if it involves a slower economy and, and higher employment. Keep in mind, employment's been roaring ahead. It's going to slow. And so we should expect the slowdown. Um, and, then, and then the issue is how much more does the Fed wish yeah. to pursue it? So we are not, we, we are not destined to have right. inflation above, above at 3% or 2%. It's going to depend on the Fed, and then things work with yeah. a lag. And keep in mind, conducting policy in real time as these data bounce around and in the marketplace uh, trying right. to observe in real time it's just very difficult okay we we're, i'm out of time mickey but we got to get you back on again this is really timely uh, with mickey levy dr levy's with barenberg capital markets and of course part of the truly earned legend the shadow open market uh, committee Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.